When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon the Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, where there they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Let me pray for us and then we'll uh, have a chat about that uh, account from Acts together. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who um, has spoken to people powerfully for thousands of years. And Lord God, we thank you that when people have heard you speak, people have had their lives transformed. And um, we know that people have come to find forgiveness that you offer. They've come to find a new hope for their lives. They've come to find direction and meaning um, into the lives that you've given them. And Father God, we just pray that that would continue here this afternoon. We pray that your words would continue to show themselves to have power this afternoon. That where we come here weary, we would find rest in your words. Where we come here uh, comfortable, we would find your words uh, prompting us to think about where we might need to change. Where we come here anxious, I pray that we would find um, a confidence in you as we hear you speak. Lord God, whatever it is um, that we need from you today, we trust that you will continue to provide it through your words uh, in the same ways you have uh, for all those years. Amen. Last week, it was um, Sarah's 40th. Some of you um, were there. Um, we had her parents up to stay for the weekend before. We had other family as well, but her parents are the ones I want to talk about um, for this for the, these few minutes. So um, they, Sarah's looking nervous. Um, so so they, they came up to stay. And on the Saturday, we were going down to Greenbanks to set up um, for her party. So we were going down a bit early and we were just going to like set up a few bits and pieces. And her mum and dad were going to come down as well. Uh, and so I said to them, well, it's, not, it, it's, it's relatively easy to find. If you just follow me, then, we'll, then you can get there and then you can come and help us. Seemed, seemed relatively straightforward. It is worth saying, at this point, Sarah's mum did say to me, you're going to have to be careful because like, we're not that great at following people. Right, so I was warned going into it about, about the, way, the way this might go. So I got in the car and I, I started the car. Uh, and before, before I've even set off, they've driven past me. Now, I don't know, 
I don't know how much you know about following people. Like maybe you're secretly a spy um, and you've done a lot of it. But regardless of how much experience you have of having followed people or not following people, it is customary that the person leads goes first and then the people who, who follow go afterwards. So anyway, her mum and dad, her mom and dad pull into the side and eventually I get out. And so I get out onto Park Road and set off. But unfortunately, the gap I'd chosen to get out on wasn't big enough for them to get out in as well. So I've now set off and I'm still not sure that they're actually getting out anywhere near me. So I pull down one of the side roads and I just like stop on, the, on that side road. I hope that they've seen me turn the corner and wait for them to like pull it behind me, which they eventually do. So eventually they come around the corner onto the side road. So I'm here in my car. They're here in this car and we're driving along the side road. Now, Greenbanks is such a like it's such an easy route. So you go along the side road, you go onto Elwick Road, you go down Elwick Road. If you're not from Harlepool, this is means nothing to any of you. Um, but but you go down Elwick Road, and all you have to do so all you've got to do from this road is turn left and then go straight. That's it. Like that's the whole route. So I'm pretty confident at this point that nothing else can go wrong. I'm like we get to the end of this road and then we turn left and it's all good. Okay, so I get to the end of the road and I turn left and I see them pull out. I'm like, this is great. I'm like, just straight now, we're gonna, we're gonna do it. So I'm like driving down the road and I'm like looking in the rear view mirror and all of a sudden they're not there. <laughs> and I'm like, where did they go? And we have no idea where they're at this point. So we just keep driving and pull into green banks thinking, how are they ever going to find where Greenbanks actually is? Because we didn't tell them, we just said to follow us. So, so eventually we get there, we get, we get into Greenbanks and we, we start setting up. And then, I don't know how long, five or ten minutes later, they, they, they pull up. The good news was they had Lewis in the car and Lewis was able to direct them <laughs> to Greenbanks through a collection of, of hand signals. So we were very pleased about this. Um, um, so, so they, they got there. And we, we said to them, like, what, what happened? And Sarah's mum says, oh, your dad started following a different car. <laughs> now, you, now, now you, you, what you learn from this story is that following someone only works if you follow the right person. Like, if you're not following the right person, if you follow the wrong person, you end up in the wrong place. Like, that, that's what, what happens. Now, uh, my guess is many of us will have, have similar stories to that of times where either we have tried to follow someone in a car and failed, or someone has tried to follow us in a car and, and, and has failed. It, it's, it's, like, it's more difficult than it sounds to do that um, whole following someone in a car. It, but what about... In life, what about in life when you find yourself following the wrong person? This is, uh, this is a situation which um, one of kind of my heroes and one of the guys who I, I uh, have studied a lot throughout my life uh, found himself in. Malcolm X found himself in this situation in 1963. Um, now, uh, in 1963, Mal Malcolm X, I don't know how much you know about Malcolm X, but Malcolm X was a contemporary of Martin Luther King, uh, 1960s in America, part of the civil rights um, struggle. But he, he took a different approach to Martin Luther King. So he wasn't a Christian like Martin Luther King was. Um, he was uh, a Muslim, um, and he didn't believe in nonviolent resistance. He believed that black people needed to establish their rights by force. He, 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 his basic premise was, why should we go begging the people who've been... Um, mistreating us for so long for our rights, we should just take them. 
If they're our rights, we should just take them. We shouldn't need to be beaten for it. We shouldn't need to go and go through this whole nonviolent civil disobedience in order to get our rights. We should take it. And so very famously, he did a speech called The Ballot or the Bullet, which was either you're going to give us representation or we're going to fight for it. That, that was his ethos. And, and during his, the early 60s, he became a member of an organization called the Nation of Islam. Now, the Nation of Islam was led by uh, a man called Elijah Muhammad, and it, and it was kind of uh, it got quite it got quite famous during those years. Um, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali became a member of the Nation of Islam as well, largely down to Malcolm X and, and his influence. Uh, and, and so he, he joined this group. But in, by 1963, he was starting to have significant worries about the Nation of Islam and about specifically Elijah Muhammad. Stories had started coming out about Elijah Muhammad having numerous um, affairs with women who worked for the Nation of Islam. Um, and so Malcolm X was rightly perturbed by this as not in keeping with what he understood the Islamic faith to be. Um, uh, and uh, those accusations were later confirmed by um, Elijah Muhammad. And so he started to question who was Elijah Muhammad and was he the right person to follow. And then he goes on a pilgrimage to Mecca. And during his pilgrimage to Mecca, he, he meets hundreds of thousands of Muslims, and he realizes that actually the, uh, the Islamic uh, kind of message that Elijah Muhammad was teaching wasn't orthodox Islam. So, for example, the Nation of Islam don't believe in resurrection from the dead. They don't believe that there's a life after death. Orthodox Muslims do believe that. And so he suddenly realized that the person he'd followed was not only uh, kind of morally suspect, but also wasn't preaching Islam in a, in a way that was kind of understood by the wider uh, Muslim community. And so this is where he finds himself. In 1963, he finds himself at, at this point in his, in his life where he's, he's spent all these years following this ethos, following this man, signed up to this idea. But what do you do when you realize the person you're following is a phony? Like, what do you do when you're in that situation? And what do you do when so much of your life is built around that? You know, all your identity, all your status, all your success, is all built into this person, this organization. It's all wound up with Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. So what do you do now? Well, in 1964, Malcolm X leaves the Nation of Islam. Uh, in 1965, he's, uh, he's assassinated. And that's the end of his relatively short-lived uh, career and, and involvement in the civil rights struggle. When you look at his life, when you look at the skills he had, the way he could speak, the way he could inspire people, you can't help but look at his life and think, how different could that have been if he'd just followed someone else? How different could Malcolm X's life have been if instead of following Elijah Muhammad, he'd got on board with what Martin Luther King was doing with, with the wider civil rights movement? How much more could he have been used? How much more could his gifts have been used for the good of black Americans during that time if instead of following the phony Elijah Muhammad, he'd followed someone else? Who knows what he might have achieved? Who knows whether he'd have even been assassinated in 65? He might have lived many decades beyond that, done so many more things. His life all took a certain path because he followed a certain person and the person he followed turned out not to be worth following. 
You see, following the wrong person can have disastrous consequences. But the problem you face, the problem I face, the problem all of us face is, how do we know who the wrong person to follow is? Like, how do we know whether someone is worth us following, worth our investment in or not? Now, now, why am I talking about this? Well, because this is exactly the situation that the kind of central figure of this story, Sergius Paulus, finds himself in in the passage we've been looking at, in the passage I just read. This is the situation he finds himself in. He's faced with two options. But knowing which one is the right one and which one is a fraud, well, that's not straightforward for him. On the one hand, he's got this guy... And Elimus. I, I, I don't. I think even when I read it, I might have one time said said Elimus and another said said Elimus. So you just have to forgive me. I'm not entirely sure how we say his name or even how I say his name. But anyway, we've got this one guy, Elimus, and he's described as a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet, which kind of gives the game away for us. You know, you don't follow the false prophet. But to Sergius Paulus, it's likely that. He came across as wise, hence the prophet bit. He probably came across as a wise person, someone who spoke words that seemed true, and so they called him a prophet. And he also probably came across as powerful. That's why they called him a sorcerer. So you've got this one guy on the one hand, Elimus. He seems to be wise and he seems to be powerful. You've got him on the one hand. But on the other hand, you've got these new guys who've just rocked up, Paul and Barnabas. They come and they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's one thing you see throughout this section, if you just um, scan through it now, you'll see the Holy Spirit is mentioned again and again and again. It's the Holy Spirit who sends them. It's the Holy Spirit who equips them. It's the Holy Spirit who speaks through them. So you've got these two guys, um, Paul and Barnabas, and they are, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they're teaching a message about the Lord, about Jesus, about all that he's done. The problem is, for Sergius Paulus, which one's telling the truth? Which one should he follow? Because one of them is an enemy of God, opposed to everything that is right. And the other is a servant of God, looking to bring people into his family. But when you look at them, how do you know who's who? How do you know who's the fraud and who's the genuine article? There's a lot riding on this decision, and Sergius Paulus is clearly torn and confused. You'll know what this is like. You'll know what it's like to have a big decision that you have to make. Just think of a big decision, what you're like when you're faced with a big decision. You know, a decision about, don't know, are you going to move or not? Are you going to marry someone or not? Are you going to, I don't know, are you going to put your money into this thing or not? Or that thing. Those kind of big decisions you have in life. Think about how you find yourself when you're in those positions... And you're, you're faced with a situation where you just can't work out what the best option is. There's, there's two things that make that situation particularly difficult. One is you just always want more information. You're always like, I just don't have enough information to know. I want, if I'm going to make such a big decision, I need to know. So you've got, on the one hand, not enough information. On the other hand, you've got the size of the decision. If I get this decision wrong... It's going to completely mess up my life. And so the combination of the gravity of the decision and our uncertainty, what does it do? It paralyzes us. We just end up not making the decision. 
And of course, you kind of make the decision by not making a decision because that's how life works. But but we just feel like we just can't make the decision. It's just, it's too big and there's too much uncertainty about it. How could we ever decide? That's the situation that Sergius Paulus finds himself here. There's two people. They're both calling on him to follow them. But how can he know which is the right one? I don't know how familiar you are with the hit Disney film, The Little Mermaid. <laughs> my, my guess is that all of us are incredibly familiar with it because it's an absolute classic. Um, but just in case you're not, The Little Mermaid tells the story of A Little Mermaid. Um, and she, she is called Ariel, and, and she has a longing to be a human. She falls in love with this human guy, who I think is called Eric, which might well be the least romantic name they could have come up with uh, at all. But anyway, he fought, she falls in love with this guy called Eric. Um, and she, uh, but she's a mermaid, he's a man, you know, it can never work. So she goes to see the sea witch, obviously, because that's what you do when faced with these situations. And having seen the sea witch, the sea witch makes a perfectly reasonable uh, bargain where... She gives her legs, and in exchange, she gives her a voice and also potentially eternal slave, slavery to her. Um, and Ariel thinks this sounds like a great deal. Um, and the deal is, you get legs for three days, and if you can get the guy to kiss you within three days, then you can stay a human forever. Uh, but if you can't, then you become a mermaid and also become my slave. Um, uh, and, and Ariel goes, yep, that's fine. But there's a catch. The catch is, Ariel loses a voice. So Ursula says, but I'm going to take your voice. You're not, you're not allowed your voice. So you've got to make the guy love you, but you're not allowed to say anything. You can't do anything. So she sets about this, Ariel, having made this trade. And she, she, um, so she, she, with the help of some kind of um, sea creatures, uh, serenading um, this, uh, serenading Eric um, on a boat, she gets to a point where he is, he is falling in love with her. And just as he's uh, about to uh, kiss her, then Ursula catches on and thinks, this is, a, this is a bad idea. So Ursula, what does she do? She disguises herself as a beautiful woman called Vanessa. Um, you know all the names. Um, they seemed important in the passage, so I thought I'd give the names of the Little Mermaid as well. Um, so, so she becomes a beautiful woman called Vanessa, and she steals Ariel's voice. And she manages to convince Eric that, that he really loves her. So we, we fast forward to the wedding day. Eric and Vanessa are getting married. Um, Ariel's been shunted because she can't speak anymore, and he's decided that he didn't love her after all, which makes you think maybe he's not such a great catch anyway. But anyway, that, that's, not the way, that's not the way the story goes. Um, so, so on the wedding day, the, the, the kind of serenading sea creatures return, uh, and, and they manage to, to smash this thing that has made, that's made Ursula disguised as Vanessa. And all of a sudden, they see... Vanessa, as who she actually is, she transforms in front of their very eyes from a beautiful winging voice to a, a horrific sea witch octopus thing with a terrible voice. And in front of their eyes, they suddenly see her for who she is. No longer is she the beautiful Vanessa, but she is the ugly Ursula. And Eric is able to see that this is not actually the love of his life because she's an ugly octopus. Um, actually, all the time it was Ariel. If you've never seen her, you don't need to now. Um, <laughs> You see, what was happened there? What happened there is the mask has been ripped off, and you actually get to see the reality that sits underneath that. You get to see Ursula for who she actually is. Now, that is what goes on in this story. 
What, what happened here is the masks are ripped off and Sergius Paulus is finally able to see who is telling the truth and who is lying. Or, more accurately to use the picture of the passage, he's able to see who is blind and who can see. You see, that's the whole point of this weird bit where Paul makes um, Elimus blind temporarily. Like, you look at that and you think, that's a weird thing to do. You just randomly made someone blind for a bit. Um, like, like, what's going on there? But the point of it is it's intended to show the spiritual reality that sits underneath this. Because spiritually, it's Paul and Barnabas who can see, and it's Elimus who is blind. Paul and Barnabas have had their eyes opened. They can see who Jesus is and what he's done. But Elimus is blind to it. He's never seen Jesus. He can't see what he's done. So what, what is going on here is God wants Sergius Paulus to realize Elimus is a blind man. And ultimately, who wants to follow a blind man? You don't want to follow the blind man. He doesn't know where he's going. He can't lead you anywhere good because he can't see. That's what's going on in this story. You see, naturally, without this miracle, Sergius Paulus doesn't get to see the spiritual reality that lies underneath. He just sees two people who both maybe sound convincing, who both seem kind of powerful. He just sees the front. He's like Eric, unable to see that the beautiful Vanessa is really the evil Ursula. Unable to see that Elimus is actually an enemy of God, not a friend of him. So in this miraculous act... The difference between the two is shown graphically as Elimus's blindness is presented for all to see. Do you see? It's, it's, it's relatively straightforward. The, the, the spiritual reality, Elimus's spiritual blindness, is given a physical manifestation for a time so that you're able to see it. That's what's going on here. And that is how so many stories in the Bible work. So many stories in the Bible work like this. You get physical signs that show spiritual realities. You'll see it again and again as you look through the Bible. For example, let me give you a few examples. For example, when Jesus takes bread, physical bread, and miraculously feeds thousands of people, what is he doing? He's taking the physical thing, bread, and the physical act of satisfying people's physical hunger, and he's using that to show that he is the spiritual bread which will satisfy our spiritual hunger. And we know that's what he's doing because that's what he says he's doing. Like, I didn't just make that up. He, literally after doing it, he says, I am the bread of life. You see, that physical act points to the spiritual reality. We have a longing for God. We have a hunger. And Jesus fills that. The physical act is there to symbolize and help us understand the spiritual reality that we're, we're, without it, we can be blind to. There's, there's many more examples. When Jesus heals physical sickness, it's a physical sign of the spiritual sickness he's come to heal. That is why so often when Jesus heals someone, he goes on to say, so repent and find forgiveness of sins. It, it doesn't seem naturally linked in our minds. Like, why is there a link between physical healing and forgiveness? But Jesus often makes that link. Why? Well, because the physical act of healing someone's physical body was supposed to point to the spiritual healing that Jesus comes to offer for our spiritual sickness through the forgiveness of sins. Of course, um, Paul himself has had this experience directly himself. 
He's had a similar experience from God. He too, like Elimus, was made temporarily blind. And why? Well, he was made temporarily physically blind to make him aware of his spiritual blindness. And then he was given his sight back again to indicate the spiritual sight that he now had because he'd seen and heard from the risen Jesus. I I know I've kind of given you a few examples of that and maybe laboured the point too much, but I just want you to get it because it's so important to understanding the Bible. It's how the Bible works. Again and again, you see physical things. And the temptation for us is to think, well, why don't we see those same physical things now? Like, why, why doesn't God, when I'm trying to work out who to follow, why doesn't he just strike a few people blind so I know not to follow them? Like, why, why doesn't he do that anymore? Well, because the physical act was always meant to point to a spiritual reality. So, what, what, what do we do with this? Well, let, let's be honest. We have this situation all the time. All of us are... Sergius Paulus's every day of her life. We're constantly faced with the question of who to follow, and we're constantly trying to work out who is wise and who is foolish. Who is for us and who is simply trying to use us? Or, like this passage, who is blind and who can actually see? Sometimes it happened in specifics. Let me, give, let me give you some examples. You're faced, you're faced with a specific decision and you have to kind of make it and work it out right there. Let, for example, maybe you're on a night out. Not speaking from experience, I'm too old for such things. But I, I remember them in the dark and distant past. They're a thing that people do. You go out and... Anyway, you're on a night out and some friends are there and they're saying, hey, just stay out, have a, have a few more. And others are saying... I think you've probably had enough. Maybe you should head home. Who are you going to listen to? Now, I, I want to be clear. I'm not actually telling you who is the right answer to those questions because I don't, I don't think it's possible to know from that. But, but just, just if you think about it, one set of friends are saying, come on, you're having a good time and a few more won't hurt. Another set are saying, you've had enough and you've got stuff to do tomorrow. Who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to one of them. How do you decide who you're going to listen to? Both are promising you a better time in a better life. You'll have a better time if you stay out. You'll have a better time if you go home. Both are presenting themselves as looking out for your interests. Thinking about what's best for you. But the question that you're you're trying to weigh up at that point is, who actually is? Who actually is wise in that situation? Who actually is for you? Who actually can see? And who's blind? Who are you going to follow? Let me give you a different decision. Maybe you meet someone and you feel attracted to them. But you're a Christian and they're not. Now, some of your friends tell you not to worry about that. After all, opposites attract. And anyway, he's really nice. And you're lucky to have found someone. Great friends. But, but the Christians in your life, are telling you not to go down that road. They're reminding you that Jesus calls you only to share your life in that way with other Christians, with people who know your God, who share in the new life that you have. They warn you it's unlikely to be good for your faith. It's unlikely to be good for your life. Both of those people are calling you to follow their advice. 
both are telling you that joy and happiness and meaning and life and fulfillment is found in going their way. The question is, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? Who's blind and who actually sees? You see, it happens in specific decisions we're making all the time. All the time we're making decisions, we're presented with with specific situations where there's two different bits of advice, two different ideas, two different philosophies, two different sets of beliefs, and we're trying to work out who's Alemus and who's Paul and Barnabas. Who's blind and who actually sees here? But So it happens in specifics, but it's worth saying it happens in a general way as well. Just throughout life, it happens generally for you. You're surrounded by people telling you the kind of life you should live. You're surrounded by politicians telling you what you should think, what you should be for, what you should be against, what you should prioritize, what you should not worry about. You're surrounded by employers telling you the kind of people you should be, the kind of work you should do, the kind of decisions you should make. You're surrounded by artists painting pictures and writing books and making films, showing you the things that you should pursue, the things that will make you happy, the things which will fulfill you, the things which are beautiful. And in that sea of voices, we're all trying to distinguish which of those voices are wise. Which of these people can see and which are blind? Who are you going to follow? And if we're honest, don't, don't a lot of the time we feel a bit like Sergius Paulus? Like confused and unsure, looking around, divided, They all sound so convincing. They all make it sound so good. It all seems so appealing. How could I ever decide? The stakes are too high, and I just don't know. How can I know who's blind and who can see? But in that sea of voices, there is another voice. It's the voice of Jesus. The voice which Paul heard on the road to Damascus. The voice which now speaks through his Holy Spirit to Paul and Barnabas. And the voice which can be heard through Paul and Barnabas' teaching. The voice is there. Jesus' voice is there. You can hear it. But it's competing. And it's competing with a whole load of other voices. And sometimes it's drowned out. And sometimes we hear it, but it doesn't sound very convincing to us. Sometimes that voice seems less appealing, less compelling than the other voices we could listen to, the other people we could follow. So the question of your life, the question of each of our lives, it's sort of where we started and where we've been throughout. The question you have to answer is who actually can see and who's blind? Because you're going to listen to someone's voice. You're going to follow someone. You're going to find wisdom somewhere. And the question is, will you pick the blind man or will you pick the man who can see? So how do you know? How do you know if you're following a fraud? How do you know if the person that you're following, if the person you're listening to is wise or foolish? 
How do you know if they're worth following? I mean, wouldn't it be so easy if God would just show us the voices we shouldn't listen to? If only people had a sign over their head which said, I'm blind, don't follow me. That'd be so much easier, wouldn't it? God showed Sergius Paulus who to listen to. Why can't he just show me? Why can't he just make it easier for me? Why can't he show me? Listen to this person. Don't listen to this person. The good, the, here's some good news for you. God's done something even better than that. Rather than pointing out the people and things we shouldn't listen to, he's given us one voice that we can always listen to. In the Bible, we hear God speak and we know it's his word and we know that he is the only one who is truly wise. He is the only one who always sees. He is the only one who always speaks the truth. You see, every person is a mix of sight and blindness. None of us see everything completely. We see some things clearly, but other things we're entirely blind to. And so any sign over any one of us would only be true some of the time. We're all a bit like Professor Trelawney. You know, most of the time we talk rubbish, but every now and then we, we get something right. Like, like that's how it is. We're like, we're, we're, bl- we're a mix of blind and sight. And so any sign over my head that said, I'm blind, don't follow me, or I can see, wouldn't always be true. Because none of us can always see. None of us always get things right. We're all blind sometimes, and the most blind person sees sometimes. That's why you can't have a function like that. So what do you have instead? Well, in the Bible, we get to hear God's wisdom. We get to hear his words, which we can always follow. This is what David means when he says in Psalm 119, listen to these words, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Or take another verse, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Or another, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. What's David saying there? He's saying that God's word, the words which we read in this Bible, give light so that we can see. They give understanding to make us wise. They give us direction to give us something to follow. Let me, let me wrap it up. This is the question I want you to think about. And you need to think about it now. And you need to think about it every decision you're making for the rest of your life. So quite a lot. Who are you going to follow? Who is wise? Who is for you? Who truly sees the way and who instead is blind and lost? That is the question of your life. Because as we said at the start, following the wrong person can be disastrous. And ultimately, it's only God's word which is always wise. It's only God's word which is always truthful. It's only God's word which is always for us. And we hear God's word in the Bible because it's in the Bible that we meet God's final word. And God's final word is not a phrase book. It's not a great speech. It's not a rule book. It's a person. When God wanted to give us something we could follow, he didn't give us simply written words. He gave us a person. When God wanted to give us something we can follow, he gave us Jesus. 
Jesus is described as God's word. And Jesus' call to all people is simple. You see as he goes around his ministry, what's his call to you? Follow me. Don't follow the blind guy over there or that blind guy or that blind guy. Follow me because I can see. Jesus' call is that we follow him, that we hear his offer of forgiveness and we accept it, that we see his life and we imitate it, that we know his spirit and experience it. That is the Christian life. And it's the defining issue of your life. Your life today, your life this week, your life this year will be entirely directed by one simple question. When it comes down to it, are you going to listen to, are you going to trust, are you going to follow Jesus, or are you going to trust a bar Jesus? Someone who sounds convincing, but ultimately has nothing for you but deceit and trickery. Sergius Paulus chose well. Let's pray that we do the same. Let me pray for us.